0: This is Dr. Marty Freed,
1: Dr. Shreya Trivedi, and Dr. Amy Tang.
0: This is the Core I Am 5 Pearls podcast brought to you by Clinical Correlations.
1: Bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls.
0: Today, we are talking about chronic hepatitis B virus infection.
2: We are joined by our expert peer reviewer and former co-resident, Dr. Amy Tang. She is a primary care physician and the director of hepatitis B programs at the Charles B. Wang Community Health Center in NYC. She also serves as the Northeast Regional Director of the National Task Force on Hepatitis B and is the Advocacy Chair for NYC Hep B Coalition. She is also involved in a HRSA-funded Hep B Tele-Echo Telemedicine Clinic. What? Yeah, to help other FQHCs reduce perinatal transmissions of Hep B and manage chronic Hep B within
1: primary care settings.
0: Amy, we are so lucky to have you on the show today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Alright, let's get started with the five questions on the PEARLS we'll be covering. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions.
2: Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains.
0: PEARL 1 Screening for Hep B Virus Infection
2: What are the most common ways Hep B is transmitted, and how can we use this to prioritize screening? Also, who is at risk for Hep B reactivation?
0: Pearl 2. Screening tests for hepatitis B virus and vaccination.
2: What tests do you order when screening for hepatitis B, and in which populations is Hep B vaccinations recommended?
0: Pearl 3. Isolated positive hepatitis B core antibody.
2: What are the four possible meanings of an isolated positive Hep B total core antibody?
0: Pearl 4. Hepatitis B virus IgM core antibody.
2: In an asymptomatic adult, is it necessary to send a hepatitis B core IgM to distinguish between acute versus chronic hep
0: B infection? Pearl 5. Hepatitis B virus E antigen seroconversion.
2: What are the implications of seroconversion of a positive hep B E antigen to a negative E antigen.
0: Shreya and Amy, I am so excited to talk about this. I feel like not too many primary care providers feel comfortable managing chronic hepatitis B in their practice and often refer to GI or ID right off the bat.
1: Yeah, that's usually the case. Where I work, about 13% of our adult population, which is primarily Asian immigrant patients, screen positive for chronic hep B. So basically, our PCPs are managing hep B as often as they are diabetes and hypertension.
2: Impressive. I wish I felt as comfortable with hep B as I do with diabetes and hypertension.
1: Well, that's why I'm here. Managing hep B is not all that complicated for most patients who just need routine monitoring of lab tests and plus or minus a liver ultrasound every six months. Yeah, and I guess
2: if we can save our patients from a few extra visits to a specialist every year, I'm sure they'd really appreciate it.
1: Yes, especially for certain immigrant populations who may face extra barriers to seeing specialists. Exactly. And one of our goals is to empower our primary care providers. So let's get into our case. We have a 46-year-old man from China who came to the States about a decade ago. He presents to our clinic for the first time for a routine physical and has no complaints.
0: So in this setting, I kind of go into Zen PCP mode. We're establishing rapport. We're doing a thorough history. And then we start ordering screening labs for metabolic diseases and thinking about vaccine. You know, I guess one of the questions that are relevant to this podcast is, would we have remembered to screen him for hep B?
1: I would hope so, since it's a U.S. Preventative Task Force recommendation to screen high-risk groups for hep B. Right.
2: And so I came across this interesting survey of about 300 primary care physicians in San Francisco and found that less than half believed that they were screening for hep B in a majority of at-risk patients. And really what tugs at my med-ed heart is that this lack of screening was despite them scoring pretty well on a test that assessed for knowledge gaps in hep B.
0: Yeah, it does sound like we can do a better job identifying and screening at-risk patients. So considering this patient is from China, where we know the virus is endemic, I would certainly screen him for hep B at the first visit.
2: Yep, and that's what the study found too. Providers were more likely to screen for hep B if they spoke an Asian language or if majority of their patients were of Asian population, like Amy does. But there are many other populations to think about that often get missed.
0: Amy, how do you think about patients who should be screened for this infection? Because I always forget, and I'm not the best at memorizing these lists of countries.
1: The best way to remember which populations to screen is to think about how Hep B is transmitted and who is at risk for reactivation. Right, so if I remember correctly, Hep B is transmitted via
2: three routes. So mother to child, we call that vertical transmission, Uh, sex, and lastly, blood contact like needle sharing or dialysis.
1: You're exactly right. Since the main modes of transmission are different based on geographic location, we use that information to prioritize groups to screen. So we not only screen immigrants born in China, like our patient, but also people born in regions with greater than 2% hepi prevalence. This includes the entire continents of Asia and Africa, parts of South America, the Middle East, and Eastern Europe.
0: Mm, Yeah, I could probably be doing a better job screening my patients from Africa, South America, the Middle East, and, and Eastern Europe too.
2: Yeah, Marty, I don't know if this helps, but sometimes I just keep the CDC
1: prevalence map open on my desktop to help me out.
0: Oh, I like that idea.
1: Whatever helps you remember. The last point about vertical transmission is that it's a U.S. Preventative Task Force Grade A recommendation that all pregnant women be screened for Hep B at their first prenatal visit. Oh no, you know I get nervous when pregos come to my clinic. I hear you, Shreya, but this is a really important public health issue. How are we going to eliminate Hep B in 2030 if we don't have primary care providers helping out? We screen because we have effective vaccines and hep B immune globulin, which is a post-exposure prophylaxis for the baby at birth, to ensure that mom doesn't vertically transmit hep B to her baby.
0: And there's something for the mothers, too?
1: Yes. If you're managing a chronic hep B patient who becomes pregnant, you'll need to monitor her viral load during pregnancy, because if it's greater than 200,000 IU per mil, there's still a risk of her transmitting hep B to her child despite the baby getting vaccinated. That's why we give these moms antiviral medication in their third trimester, so their chances of transmitting to the baby are essentially zero.
2: Really, the chance of transmission becomes zero? Tell us, Amy, about the other modes of transmission.
1: So you also mentioned sex and needle sharing. These are the most common modes of transmission outside of endemic regions. So if we break those two
2: down, in terms of sexual risk, we need to think of sexual partners of people with hepatitis B or household contacts of them as well as men who have sex with men. And then, with needle sharing, that puts current and former IV drug users, as well as hemodialysis patients, at high risk.
0: I've heard that hep B can live outside of the body for up to 7 days in dried blood. Amy, is that true?
1: Close, Marty. It's actually at least 7 days in up to 400 years.
0: Wait, 400 years?
1: Amazing, right? Scientists were able to sequence the hep B DNA virus found in a 16th century Korean mummy. Anyway, that's why we counsel our patients with chronic hep B infection about not sharing toothbrushes or razors. All blood spills should be clean with bleach. Hmm, and then we should also counsel our patients on risk of reactivation, right?
2: I remember when I was on the heme service, I was always having to screen patients for hep B prior to starting chemo,
1: and that was to prevent
2: reactivation,
1: right? Absolutely. Rituximab and TNF-alpha inhibitors are common drugs that cause hep B reactivation. There seems to be a constant stream of new biologics that probably pose some risk, but they aren't well studied. So it's a good idea to screen prior to starting those.
0: Shreya, I get the TNF-alpha inhibitors confused all the time. Do you remember the most common medications?
1: I do. There are, I think,
2: five. So infliximab, and entericap. And then I think the less common ones are golimumab. Oh, goodness, it's so hard to say. mab,
0: Golimab,
2: Golimabab uh-huh. okay. And sertolizumab. What's the other one?
0: Sertolizumabu.
2: Okay, guys, why are you taking so much time out of to pimp me on this? What is the relevance?
1: <laughs> so even though another provider might start it, it's just as important for PCPs to know adverse effects of these meds, as hep B reactivation can cause liver failure and even death.
2: Hmm... I didn't know hep B reactivation could be that bad. There are two other infections that we'd always screen for on the heme service too.
0: HIV and hep C?
1: For sure. Treatment is complicated in the setting of co-infection. There's a risk of hep B reactivation with the newest hep C medications.
0: So those patients should be screened and treated if necessary.
1: And caution should be taken in patients being
2: treated for both hepatitis B and HIV or starting HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, also known as PrEP, because there are medications out there that treat both.
0: And we want to avoid breeding resistance.
2: Sounds like a referral to a specialist was probably helpful in those more complicated decisions.
0: Amy, this has been great. Let's recap hep B screening. So in general, we screen two major categories of patients. There's those at risk for infection and those whose treatment of other diseases may cause complication. Most common modes of transmission include sex and needle sharing and vertical transmission. And pop quiz, from what endemic areas would mothers more likely be passing it on to their children?
2: Oh, okay. I got this. So all of Asia, you know, that that one I always remember, then Africa, Middle East, Eastern Europe, and North, mid-South America.
0: And we should screen for hepatitis B prior to administering immunosuppressants and prior to treating hepatitis C, HIV, or prescribing PrEP.
1: Exactly. So now that we agree on screening, how are you going to screen our patient? All right. I'm glad we're covering this because I've actually seen
2: differences between textbooks and what clinicians do in practice. Most of the time I see screening is done with just a hep B surface antigen and antibody.
1: You'd be two thirds of the way there, Shreya. Oh no, that's like 66%. That's a D. So a complete hep B screening involves three tests, hep B surface antigen, which tells you if the patient has a current infection, hep B surface antibody, which tells you if the patient has immunity, and total hep B core antibody, which can tell you if the patient has ever been infected. Okay, so for those of us that have been doing this wrong, tell us why it's important to send the core antibody right from the start. So say you have a patient who tests negative for hep B surface antigen, but positive for hep B surface antibody and total hep B core antibody. If you hadn't checked the total core antibody, you might think that the patient was immune from prior vaccination rather than living with the virus dormant in their liver and at risk for reactivation.
2: Ooh, so hep B dormant in the liver cells. That's kind of like the varicella zoster virus being dormant in the dorsal root ganglia if anyone's ever had chickenpox, right?
1: Yes, and this idea of dormancy and reactivation when the immune system is suppressed is common for other DNA viruses too like EBV and HSV. DNA viruses are pretty hardy in that they are easy to infect and hard to cure, unlike hep C or other RNA viruses, which don't have this reactivation issue.
0: What a great way to think about it. So let's say our patient is triple negative. That is negative to hep B surface antigen, hep B surface antibody, and hep B core antibody, which indicates susceptibility to infection. So he should probably be vaccinated. But does everyone need to be vaccinated?
2: That's a great question because I've been in this situation so many times where I find someone's not vaccinated, then my patient's reluctantly asking, Hey, doc, do I really need to be vaccinated? And I'm like, Uh, yes. So, Amy, what's the best practice for vaccination?
1: The people you want to vaccinate pretty much follow the same criteria as who you'd want to screen. Plus, all diabetics, sexually active people not in a long-term monogamous relationship, healthcare professionals, international travelers to regions with intermediate or high prevalence of hep B, and all of the people who wish to be protected from hep B infection. So that's almost everyone.
0: Yeah. Most of that list makes sense to me, but I thought the diabetics recommendation was surprising. Amy, what's the story behind that?
1: That recommendation was based on a case series of hep B outbreaks and long-term care facilities where blood glucose monitors for diabetics were found to be a vector for hep B transmission to other residents. So in 2011, the CDC recommended hep B vaccination whenever diabetes is, is diagnosed.
0: Oh man, I can't help but picture little old ladies giving each other hep B by sharing the same glucometers.
1: And a quick update. The FDA just approved a new two shot Hep B vaccine that can be given over one month instead of three shots over six months.
0: Oh, I love that. Less running around for our patients.
1: Just a quick word from our sponsor.
3: We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from Calorie Smart to Protein Plus to Keto. And don't forget, they have 60-plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash 50 Use the code Coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code Coriam50 at factormeals.com slash 50
0: Amy, I remember having a patient with a positive core antibody, but then he had both a negative surface antigen and a negative surface antibody. I remember being confused by this because if there is a positive core antibody from past infection, shouldn't there also be a positive surface antibody present?
1: Great question, Marty. This is a complicated question. We call this result isolated core. It can have four possible meanings. The majority of these patients were previously infected with hep B but just don't have a detectable surface antibody. Hmm, interesting. What else could it mean? Then, about 8% of these patients have occult infection, meaning that if checked, they would have a low level of viremia, despite not having a detectable surface antigen. Nice. What else could it mean? And less common are patients with a resolving acute infection, meaning the surface antibody hasn't formed yet.
2: Ooh, is that the
1: window face that we learned about in med school? That's right, Shreya. And the last possible meaning is a false positive core antibody, which is rare these days with modern assays.
2: Hmm. Okay, so if we change the scenario and our Chinese patient was surface antigen and core antibody positive, but had a surface antibody that was negative, the question then becomes determining is this an acute asymptomatic infection or a chronic infection? Should we send off an IgM core antibody to help us?
0: Yep, IgMs are made first. In the acute infection, it will still be positive, but patients with chronic HBV will have lost their IgM core antibody.
1: That is theoretically correct. In my clinic where we are routinely screening asymptomatic patients from endemic areas, we assume a positive surface antigen result implies chronic infection. Oh, really? Hmm. It's useful to know that immunocompetent adults acutely infected with Hep B are more likely to show symptoms and less likely to develop chronic infection. Whereas young children or immunosuppressed persons are less likely to have symptoms of acute infection and more likely to develop chronic infection. In fact, infants perinatally infected have up to a 90% chance of developing chronic infection.
2: And grow up to come to a clinic near you. So once we see these labs in our asymptomatic patient and determine it's a chronic infection, there's one other hep B serology to be mindful of.
0: The dreaded E antigen. Man, did this confuse the heck out of me before I had Amy as a resident, and then she explained it to me.
2: Of course, Amy dropping knowledge bombs on rounds. What did Amy teach you?
0: So what I came to appreciate is that the e-antigen is a marker of active replication and a big-time risk of viral transmission and a risk for hepatocellular carcinoma.
2: Ah, lots of badness.
0: But seroconversion, or the process of going from hep B e-antigen positive to e-antigen negative, is a major milestone in the natural history or treatment of a patient with chronic hepatitis B.
1: Yes. Losing the antigen has been associated with decreased risk of cancer. One of the largest studies to examine this was a 2002 New England Journal of Medicine paper that prospectively looked at nearly 12,000 Taiwanese men over 10 years. They took the subset of that large group who were infected with hep B and compared rates of incident hepatocellular carcinoma in those with e positive versus those with e negative. After adjusting for hepatocellular risk factors, The men who had e-antigen positivity were more than six times as likely to develop liver cancer than those without e-antigen. So what you're saying is that
2: those who seroconverted or lost their e-antigen while gaining their e-antibody had lower rates of cancer. That's great for the patient.
1: You guys are correct in that antigen is a marker of infectivity and viral replication. However, that is not to say that antigen-negative patients won't have active viral replication or develop liver cancer. We should note that the majority of people infected with hep B perinatally will seroconvert from hep B antigen-positive to negative around the age of 30.
0: And this is usually accompanied with a major decrease in viral load levels.
1: Yes, but there's a subset of HepB antigen-negative folks who will develop pre-core or basal core promoter mutations in the stop codon regions of the HepB genome that's integrated into the patient's hepatocytes. So this leads to viral replication and elevated liver cancer and cirrhosis risk despite antigen negativity. So that New England Journal of Medicine Taiwan study that we mentioned before also found a strong correlation between viral load levels and risk for HCC independent of e-antigen status, and that's why hep B e-antigen negative patients with elevated viral loads require antiviral therapy.
0: Mm, I've seen this situation before and I've actually started tenofovir for this very reason.
2: Nice, and we'll talk more about treatment like tenofovir in part two of chronic hep B infections. Now, let's recap the take-home points on chronic hep B that we have so far.
0: Pro one. Hep B screening should be done for two big buckets of patients, those with high risk of transmission and those at high risk for reactivation. The first group of people include those from endemic countries, really anyone foreign born, close contacts of people with hep B virus infection, and those at risk for sexual transmission. The second bucket, those at risk for reactivation, are patients with HIV, hep C virus infection, and those about to start chemotherapy or a biologic agent that might predispose to hep B virus reactivation.
2: Pearl 2. Screen with hep B surface antigen, antibody, and total core antibody, and pretty much everyone who's susceptible to hep B should be vaccinated.
0: Pearl 3. The majority of patients with an isolated total core antibody have been exposed in the past and just have undetectable levels of hep B surface antibody. But you can also consider measuring hep B virus DNA to see if the patient has occult infection.
2: Pearl 4. In an asymptomatic patient from an endemic area, a positive hep B surface antigen implies chronic infection. IgM core antibody does not need to be sent.
0: Pearl 5. E antigen is a marker of active replication and increases risk of viral transmission, and risk for hepatocellular carcinoma. The majority of patients infected with hep B perinatally will seroconvert from hep B E antigen positive to hep B E antigen negative about the age of 30. But it's important to be aware of a subset of E antigen negative patients will develop a mutation leading to increased risk for hepatocellular carcinoma. All right, thanks for listening. If you have any questions, please email us at coreimpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at, at @coreimpodcast. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at CoreIMPodcast.
2: Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of NYU or other affiliated institutions. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, see your own healthcare provider for medical care. All right, thanks for joining us.
0: See you guys next Wednesday.
2: Take care.